Hi, good afternoon. Uh, I'm Mike Duran, Senior Fellow at Hudson, and uh, I'm sorry we're starting late. Uh, it turns out that uh, Senator Graham had another vote called unexpectedly, uh, and so he's going to be a while yet before he shows up. So we thought we'll just start the panel, uh, and then when he shows, we'll stop. When, I mean, when he shows up, we'll stop, and he'll give his remarks. Uh, and then if we still have some time, we'll go back to the, we'll, we'll go back to the panel. And I uh, apologize for the, for the disruption. It's Hudson's, uh, the Hudson Institute's strong commitment to American democracy that uh, leads us to make these sacrifices. Um, okay, so uh, I'm uh, tremendously excited to have this, uh, uh, this panel here with me today. Um, let, me, uh, uh, let me introduce the, the panelists. Uh, to, my immediate, uh, to my immediate left here is Rob Satloff, uh, who is the executive director of the Washington Institute. Um, he, uh, which of course is one of the leading think tanks on the Middle East in, the, um, in Washington. He's held that position since about 1963. Uh, he was a very precocious young man. Uh, no, he's a, a, Rob is probably well known to all of you. He's a fixture here in uh, Washington on the Middle East. Uh, he is uh, a, an expert on Middle Eastern politics, on U.S. policy toward the Middle East, uh, and also on the, the War of Ideas. He's an accomplished scholar. He has a PhD. Uh, he's written uh, or edited some nine books and monographs. Uh, the most exciting among those, or interesting among those, uh, is a book on um, the Holocaust in the Arab world. He spent two years uh, in Morocco with his family researching uh, uh, Nazi policies in North Africa, uh, uh, produced a, a volume on that, which was later turned into a PBS uh, uh, miniseries. To Rob's left, we have uh, uh, Michelle Dunn, uh, who is the director and senior associate of the Middle East program at the Carnegie Endowment for uh, International Peace. Uh, uh, Michelle is um, uh, herself an accomplished scholar. Um, she is also uh, a policy practitioner. From uh, uh, 2000, uh, 1986 to 2003, she served in a variety of positions in the U.S. government, in the, uh, in the State Department, the Policy Planning Staff, and the National Security Council, uh, 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 all dealing with the Middle East. After that, she took a break from government service and taught Arabic uh, at Georgetown. So uh, she knows more irregular Arab verbs than you're ever going to forget. Or she's forgotten. No, that's not. She's forgotten more irregular Arabic, Arabic verbs than you'll ever uh, than you'll ever learn. Uh, uh, since then, she's been working in uh, think tanks in uh, uh, in Washington. Um, she was uh, a founder of the uh, Rafiq Hariri Center for the Middle East at the Atlantic Council. Um, and, and now she's at the Carnegie Endowment for, uh, uh, for Middle East Peace. She's a, an expert on, uh, for international peace. She's an expert on the Arab world in general, but especially on Egypt um, uh, and uh, democracy promotion and uh, issues of that sort. Um, and then last but not least, to the, to the left, is uh, Ambassador Eric Edelman. Um, uh, 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 Ambassador Edelman is a retired Foreign Service officer who had an extremely uh, distinguished career. He was uh, ambassador to Finland. He was ambassador to Turkey. Um, he, he served in uh, Prague. He served in, uh, he served in Israel. Uh, but he's also had a long uh, history of association with the Department of Defense, uh, which culminated in the Bush administration uh, when he was the undersecretary for policy 
uh, in the Department of Defense. That's the senior policy uh, official. Uh, and that means that he is an expert on, uh, on just about everything. And let me just read to you from his official bio. Uh, he provided analysis on strategy, policy development, security services, trade ad advocacy, public outreach, citizen services, and Relations. Uh, so uh, there's really, seriously, I, I worked for uh, Ambassador Edelman uh, in the Defense Department, and there is not an issue in American foreign policy uh, uh, on which uh, I think he is not one of the leading experts. And I say that uh, I, I, can't, I really can't think of a thing uh, on which uh, he cannot discourse at length uh, with, with enormous expertise. So on top of everything else, he's a tremendous bibliophile. I never have a conversation with him when I don't learn about a book in my field that I didn't know about. Um, he is also, on top of all that, he has the most uh, uh, exciting title out of all of us. He is, uh, uh, he is uh, a knight uh, uh, with the Legion of Honor from France. So uh, n none of us, I don't think, Rob, you don't have a knighthood? None of us else have a knighthood. So uh, with that, I'll, uh, I'll turn to the conversation. And uh, what sparked this panel, uh, uh, I think, was uh, the, uh, the article uh, in the Atlantic Monthly by, uh, uh, by Jeffrey Goldberg. Uh, I think probably everybody in this room uh, read that article, The Obama Doctrine. Um, I think uh, in, in reading that and, and seeing uh, in the president's own words um, some of his very surprising attitudes uh, uh, about the Middle East, or at least uh, attitudes that, uh, uh, that, that surprised me, the president, I think, has invited us uh, to have a national conversation about the place of the Middle East uh, uh, the, the, the place of the Middle East and United States foreign policy. In fact, uh, Goldberg, uh, uh, with only, I think, very little analysis, basically just repeating what the president said, ha comes to the conclusion in the article that the president just doesn't think that the Middle East matters uh, uh, very much. Uh, and so what we want to do here is we want to ask, what, what, is the what is the president's legacy uh, in, in the Middle East? Is he right? Is he wrong? Uh, uh, if, he's, uh, if he's wrong... Uh, uh, in what ways should we be changing the, 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 the policy? Uh, is there, are there aspects of his legacy that we want to keep? Um, and then what's the likelihood that any of the, uh, uh, that any of the likely uh, successors to President Obama um, will do the things that, that, that we here on this panel think um, uh, ought to be done? And so let me, with that, let me turn to Rob and just say, Rob, how do you think you you have a you have a doctorate in history, uh, and you have long uh, experience with this region and with the, with, the, with the Middle East? How do you think the historians are going to remember what the president uh, uh, what the president did? Well, um, thank you very much, uh, Mike. Um, first, just as a prefatory note, I wanted to say how uh, uh, really delighted I am to be on a panel with Michelle and Eric, um, for whom I have the greatest respect. And really happy to be in, in Hudson, this fantastic new new home for you. And uh, congratulations to you, Mike, and thank you for organizing uh, this event. Um, I also want to congratulate my friend Jeff Goldberg on uh, on uh, this um, uh, this really impressive piece of journalism. I think what Jeff has done is has he's given us an opportunity to decode the president uh, by the president decoding himself and laying it all out for us. And there is, um, uh, there's really very little um, uh, hidden here. Everything is on the table. 
Usually this waits until significantly after a president leaves office or a senior official leaves office. So what is unusual here is that um, with significant amount of time left on the clock, the president has laid out um, uh, in, in amazing detail um, not just worldviews, but his impressions on specific issues and specific people and his relationship to his advisors, um, which I think people will be trying to psychoanalyze for many years to come. Look, if I could just make a couple of general remarks. Um, uh, you know, first, this has been a very difficult season to be in the think tank business. Um, on the one hand, we've had uh, political candidates um, of both of both major parties who've had no foreign policy advisors. And when you have no foreign policy advisors, then it's difficult for a think tank to engage with political candidates. So um, whether it's you know Sanders, Trump, whatever, um, uh, it's been a difficult season for people in our line of work. And then along comes the President of the United States in this article uh, uh, and takes a direct, you know, direct attack on what we do for a living. You know, um, uh, uh, we're all owned um, uh, wholly uh, in one way or another by interest groups um, who uh, appear not to have the national interest um, uh, as uh, a principal motivating factor. Um, uh, uh, and there's no discrimination in the president's comments between this or that institution, between this or that source of advice, uh, where all of us in our business are... Um, are disparaged in this way. So this has not been an easy moment to be in our business. And I think our business, namely um, uh, the business of trying to um, marry scholarship and policymaking, is a very important line of work. And so I'm going to just open my remarks by saying this does matter, what we do for a living. What Hudson does, what Carnegie does, um, uh, what the Washington Institute does, and I would hope that at the end of this, there is a recognition that, that we make a useful contribution. Uh, secondly, um, just a couple of headlines. Um, I mean, the president in, this, in, his, in the Obama doctrine, it reflects a, a pendulum that certainly shifts in one extreme direction. Uh, does the Middle East matter? Well, of course it matters. It just matters in a different way than it used to matter. Uh, 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 the Middle East today matters more as a source of, having, uh, of exporting insecurity rather than a source of great opportunity. But that matters a hell of a lot. That matters to the, uh, the interests and the lives of Americans. And so the conclusion that the Middle East doesn't matter, I think, is a fundamental misreading of, uh, uh, of the global situation. Um, uh, does the U.S. disproportionately contribute to the collective security? Well, of course we do. We're a global power. We're always going to uh, uh, disproportionately play a role and contribute more than all of our allies. That doesn't mean that our allies are free riders as a result, although some may be under-contributing. It's an it's a extreme conclusion 
for an analytical assessment. Was there a halcyon moment when Iran and Saudi Arabia were partners with the United States in ensuring security in the Gulf? Yes, there was. It was very brief, and it was um, uh, well before uh, uh, you, know, you were uh, even in high school. It was well before the Islamic Republic existed. And so that reality, namely the reality of the Islamic Republic and everything that it represents, is not something that we can wish away for this idea of sharing the Middle East that is uh, suggested by the president's remarks. And so I think in the broad scope, there's a lot more um, uh, ex post facto rationalization for decisions than there is a true doctrine. And I think that is reflected more than anything else in the Syria red line. And I don't know if now is the moment, but I did want to go into to spend two more minutes on the red line issue, which I think historians, just to, to, to tie up from your remark, I think historians will view as the single most consequential foreign policy decision that this president has made. Um, uh, because it really marks, it, it, it marks the shift. It marks the, um, uh, uh, um, uh, the moment when uh, the president not only um, uh, parted company with our allies, parted company with, our, at, with his advisors, with his cabinet, but he did it, and in retrospect even more so, he did it with a moral certainty. The, the, the words in, 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 in the Atlantic article are remarkable. He did it with pride. I am prouder of this moment than any other. It, it reflected moral courage. Not moral courage, he said, to take on those who used chemical weapons against innocents, but moral courage to take on the Washington establishment. Mm. And that decision to, to who he should take on with pride, conviction, and moral courage, namely uh, uh, people in this room or the perpetrators of the great crime in Syria in 2013, I think is the, is the single decision that will last well beyond um, uh, the life of this administration. I'll, uh, um, I'll come back to you on, on two issues. One is what exactly was behind that decision? Uh, because uh, uh, I have my own personal theory about it, but there's a, I think there's a number of attitudes that went into that uh, decision. Um, but also, what do we do? Uh, I want to come back to you on what, what do we do to, obviously we can't reverse it, but what do we do to, 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 um, to, put, to move the pendulum back in another, um, uh, in another direction? But um, let me just turn to Michelle now. And uh, Michelle, um, do you agree with Rob? Um, how, do you, how do you understand um, the, the legacy? What's good about it? What's bad about it? Where we're we going from here? Yeah, uh, well, I agree with Rob that um, I think um, certainly President Obama's policy towards Syria overall in that particular moment of failing to um, enforce the red line were hugely consequential. I mean, there's already been a lot of talk about how it affected the thinking of uh, President Putin and, and so forth, you know. Um, so that's, I agree with that. I mean, the other major thing, of course, is the nuclear deal with Iran. And, um, you know, and that was... Um, 
uh, you know, we, we'll see how that goes, but it, 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 it was the only fully actualized Middle East policy, I think, of the Obama administration. It was the only issue to which uh, w behind which there was a real strategy, whether you agree with it or you don't agree with it or you agree with the agreement or not, it was a fully fleshed out policy pursued across, you know, different, uh, uh, using different tools and so forth. A lot of these other things, and notably Syria, the policy towards Syria was never that. I mean, it was a policy defined by the absence of a strategy and so forth and a decision not to take on leadership, which I think is exactly what Rob is talking about being so consequential and the signaling. There were a number of other uh, things that happened in the Middle East, I think, where the president also signaled that, that, that there would be a gap between what he would say and what he would actually follow up on. Um, I wanted to raise another issue, which is related to the Syria as well, which is uh, the problem I think we have in the United States with our presidents sometimes overlearning the lessons of their predecessors, right? And this is, you know, very much um, interpreting uh, things that their predecessor did, particularly if the predecessor was from the other side of the political aisle. There's already been a lot of discussion about this related to Iraq, but I think that, you know, President Obama's uh, overlearning the lessons related to Iraq, the way he the way he handled Iraq in the first few years, and then of course the decision he made not to become involved in any significant way in Syria. Not certainly, I'm not talking about by a, uh, by by an invasion, but even to take the leadership diplomatically or otherwise, uh, working with others regarding Syria. You know, this is what has has brought us the problem that we now have of ISIS and so forth. So another uh, aspect, though, that I wanted to mention where I think President Obama overlearned lessons from uh, his predecessor were on how to manage relations with Arab states. You know, it was, it was really notable when, when President Obama came to office in 2009, he and others in this administration had this idea that President Bush had wrecked relations with Arab states. Uh, and that they wanted to reverse all of that, and so what they, you know, what they did was they, uh, you know, they they canceled Bush's freedom agenda that they thought had needlessly irritated Arab allies. They returned to a very sort of traditional form of uh, diplomacy, but then we saw soon that, in a way, it wasn't the traditional form of diplomacy because it really contained, and we see this now very much in the interview, a kind of contempt. Mm. For uh, you know, for the Arab allies, and I also think that was informed by some of Obama's early experiences. I mean, for example, his first visit to Saudi Arabia in 2009, which apparently went quite badly. So, um, so we see this. I think what this resulted in during the Obama administration, and I think this is something that really needs to be fixed in the next administration, is a policy toward Arab states that really lacked any skill. Or, or nuance. And uh, I think, as I said, there was this contempt for leaders, this idea that we don't need to confer closely. And this, you know, as the Middle East started going through this incredibly tumultuous period after 2011 with these uprisings and so forth, um, there was real resistance in the administration to uh, suggestions to confer more closely with uh, Arab leaders in the region who were extremely nervous and so forth about what's going on. On the other side, though, I also think that Obama made a mistake by really uh, ab abandoning the principles of the Bush Freedom Agenda, which was about reaching out to the populations 
of Arab countries over the heads of their leaders and cultivating, you know, uh, supporting those who shared our values and in a way cultivating American soft power in the region that way. Obama made a little bit of an attempt at this with the Cairo speech, uh, but he never followed up on that. And then uh, again, you know, when the Arab uprisings happened, he showed a little bit of support for uh, those ideals and so forth that were expressed, but then he quickly backed off on this. So I, you know, I, I think uh, that you know this ended up in a, a, a situation where uh, President Obama has far worse relations both with Arab leaders and with the populations of Arab states than President Bush did, right? And, and Obama came to, uh, came to office thinking he had to fix that problem. My big concern, actually, is that the next president might overlearn the lessons of Obama. Because what I hear a lot now uh, is that, um, you know, once again, let's go back to something very uh, traditional. Let's just give backing to strong men who, you know, tell the West what we want to hear and crack heads at home. I think there's a real um, sense now of people confusing brutality with effectiveness in fighting uh, radicalization and terrorism. I don't think, um, uh, from what I can see, most of the candidates and certainly many in the American public don't recognize how uh, the kind of brutality that we see in many Arab countries is driving radicalizations and recruits to terrorist groups and so forth. And so we really, you know, the next president really needs to cultivate a, a different kind of policy in which, and I, I think this is absolutely possible to do, uh, and I do think President Bush did this, in which you have, you know, you engage with Arab leaders, you don't express contempt for them, you don't ignore them, but at the same time, you reach out to their populations and, you know, and you, you cultivate U.S. soft power by showing what we, the kind of values we stand for and the kind of future for, it. this is a hugely youthful region and a region in which there's a tremendous gap between the aspirations of these very young populations and the abysmally bad governance that, at least in most of the Arab countries, uh, is, is provided to them. You know, I, um, the, the, what I try to imagine in my mind all the time uh, is how we in the think tank world um, can, uh, can convince the American people that it's worth their effort. Uh, because I worry, I see exactly what you're talking about, about the tendency to want to go back to strongmen, but I see it, you know, on both sides of the political aisle, just a lack of patience for this region um, uh, and a desire to see it go away. And I think that what we're seeing reflected in President Obama's policies is, you know, is deeper than just uh, um, his own particular ideas. Um, I don't know, Eric, I don't know if I want to dump that on you, if you want to have that dumped on you, if you can explain to us how we convince the American people that this region matters. But uh, um, any <clears throat> thoughts that you have on anything that your colleagues here have said or on that question, well, we'd be happy to hear. Um, <clears throat> thank you, Mike. First of all, let me just say it's great to be here um, in your new uh, environs here at Hudson. Um, got a great view of the new Trump <laughs> hotel. The, yeah. um, not everyone can see the, uh, the, the big Trump sign over there. That's not, uh, that's not, I know that's not, uh, a, I know it's not a political statement. Yeah. I understand. Um, <laughs> but it's also great to be on a panel with Rob and Michelle um, and to have it moderated by you. It was great working with you uh, both when you were on the NSC and the, uh, at the Pentagon. It was great working with Michelle. Um, I salute her for having, she was just talking about this, but having resisted the previous conventional wisdom uh, which before 2010 was that all these regimes were coup-proof, 
social science told us that they all the regimes had learned how to uh, have a monopoly on the you know, what we as a Soviet specialist I would have called the power ministries and able to keep a lid on their populations and there's no point in promoting democratic change because it was not going to come. That's now given way, as Michelle just mentioned, to the new conventional wisdom is now that that's all been proven wrong, uh, we've discovered that the you know, only thing that can keep these societies straight is a strong man. And, and Michelle has you know, resisted the conventional wisdom on both ends, and I think she's been you know, right uh, about that, so I salute her for that. Um, first, on the question of does the Middle East matter, it's very easy, I think, and you hear some of this in the debate in the 2016 cycle, given America's uh, recent energy self-sufficiency, and I would point out that we're not energy independent, which is what some people some sometimes say, we are more self-sufficient because of hydraulic uh, fracturing and, and uh, reduction of oil and tight, tight uh, oil and, um, and natural gas than we used to be. Uh, but because oil is a globally traded commodity, we're not really independent. A lot of it, you know, we still bring a lot of oil in from other countries anyway. Uh, it's tempting to say, you know, let's let this uh, region return to the oblivion it so richly deserves uh, because you know uh, we're not dependent on on foreign oil anymore. Uh, that's tempting, but it's wrong, I think, because first of all, uh, precisely because oil is globally traded, it's subject to price shocks, and were Middle East oil to go offline, it would have a huge impact on the U.S. domestic economy. Not to mention the fact that our allies, and I'll come back and talk about allies and. Both um, Rob and uh, Michelle have commented on the president's contempt for allies, uh, revealed in the uh, in the Goldberg variations, as I like to call it. Um, uh, but uh, the allies are very dependent on hydrocarbon resources from this part of the world. And then finally, Rob made the other point that I think is important, which is if you believe, as I do, in the um, sort of broken windows approach to global order. Uh, allowing a region to sink into disorder uh, leads to the export of that disorder. And we've seen that happening in Europe, where Europe is now being overwhelmed by a migration crisis triggered by all of this uh, uncertainty and instability in the Middle East. And that's not likely to end anytime soon. And I think one of the president's legacies, uh, as when historians write the story, may well end up being the destruction of uh, the European institutions and a united Europe. Uh, which is something that all American presidents have struggled to support since 1945. Um, so I think it's still important. Uh, the president's approach is revealed uh, uh, finally and clearly uh, in, the, in the Goldberg interviews, I think has not been a secret really to other people. Uh, Michael, you yourself have written about this in your essay about the Iran part of this uh, in, in Mosaic and Elliot Abrams and I have engaged in an exchange with you about that. Uh, I never thought it was, you know, really a secret. The president just very, you know, verbally articulated it with Jeff Goldberg. Colin Duick, in his recent book uh, published by Oxford on the Obama doctrine, I think does a wonderful job, and I think his book is validated by this as well, in putting the president's comments into kind of larger context which is the degree to which the president has a grand strategy, if you will, or a doctrine, has been, first of all, that he would like foreign affairs not to impinge very much on his presidency, mm -hmm. because he conceives of his presidency largely as a transformational activity in which he, through the force of his personality, uh, transforms 
uh, the United States. And you see that in the Affordable Care Act, which was the major achievement in the first administration, uh, and many other uh, realms of, of policy. Um, to the degree that foreign affairs uh, impinges on, on his presidency, uh, he sees it as also in need of a transformation, and largely a transformation that can be accomplished by the force of his personality. And you see that reflected in the Cairo speech, the speech he gave in Ankara um, when he um, first came into office, and that his own personal biography uh, allows him to, uh, the fact that he lived outside of the United States, uh, that his father was a Muslim, that he, he has a unique personal ability to transform international relations. And the transformation that he is looking for is to, uh, as we might have said in the 60s, uh, be part of the solution rather than the problem. And to do that, you need to reach out to your adversaries, conciliate them, propitiate them, even if it comes at the expense of uh, antagonizing or irritating your allies. And I think you see all those things on display uh, in, in the Goldberg, uh, Goldberg uh, interviews. And I would go further. I would say that when you take the totality of what he said, the figure in the 2016 presidential cycle he most resembles, and I'm saying this advisedly, is Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, and I say that for, for two reasons. One, there is a personal reason uh, for this. I, I was... Uh, giving a talk uh, down at uh, UVA not long ago, and a uh, psychiatrist was there. We were talking about Trump. And he said, you know, the problem here is that there's only one thing that, you know, we in the field of psychiatry have proven unable to um, deal with therapeutically, which is narcissism. Mm. And I think what you see on display in the Goldberg piece is the president's narcissism. We've seen it on display before. Uh, he said, I'm a better, uh, I don't need George Kennan, I'm a better political director than my political director, I'm a better speechwriter than my speechwriter. Uh, and in the Goldberg piece, as, as Rob acknowledged in his comments, uh, he knows better than the entire foreign policy establishment, both inside his administration and without. Um, and I, so I think there's no, you know, no uh, you know, gainsaying that. The other element is his attitude towards our allies uh, and free riders is the mirror image of Trump's. Trump says it in a more vulgar and crass way, but President Obama has given him a permission slip to engage in this. I yeah. think that I think that Senator Graham. I think is Senator arrived. Graham has come, so uh, we'll take a break here for a moment. Senator Graham will come in, and then we'll resume this afterwards. Good to see you. How are you? Nice to see you. I'm John Walters. I'm Chief Operating Officer here at Hudson. It's my honor to introduce Senator Graham. Um, uh, we're, we apologize, but uh, there's also still work to be done in the Senate, and he's a leader in doing it, so uh, he's late, but uh, uh, I know we all understand. I welcome him here to Hudson's uh, Stern Policy Center. Let me just say just brief words, because I know he has a lot to say, and I don't want to get into his time. Senator Graham, as you know, in this room, is one of the most prominent national security experts in Washington. He has traveled extensively throughout the Middle East. He has a distinguished record of public service, including 33 years in uniform in the United States Air Force. He was elected to the House in 1994 and then the Senate in 2002. He serves on the Judiciary, Budget, 
and Appropriations Committee. He's a senior member of the Armed Services Committee, and Senator Graham has been a forceful advocate for four strong national defense and a robust global leadership. In fact, he's been one of the most important voices, I believe, in the last 10 years in this, this area. It's gotten more important, and he's become more influential as time has gone on. It is indeed our honor to welcome Senator Graham. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you all. Can you see me? Not going to get any taller, so uh, uh, thanks for the invite. Appreciate what the Institute does. Uh, it's, uh, we think alike. And, uh, you know, being an influential foreign policy person is like being the tallest short person. I don't know what you get for it, given the way the world is. Uh, I just got back from Israel, Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey. Not good. Five years into the Civil War and uh, Syria. Where are we at? What have we learned? Can I just make a list of observations? 250,000 Syrians have been killed and not much attention to it. You know, we regret the loss of life from terrorism anywhere in the world. Paris, Brussels, our heart breaks when innocent people are killed uh, for no good reason, sitting in a cafe or a theater or trying to board a train. Uh, it rocks us all. Villages have been decimated. Women have been captured, sold into slavery. People have been slaughtered. Not much. What does it say? It says the West has a double standard. If I were in the region, I would feel that I must be a second-class person, that nobody spends much time and attention to what happens to me and my family. So I hope we'll wake up to the fact that we have ignored one of the great sad stories in modern history. And if it happens to them over there, it really is not news until it happens to somebody like us in a place that we actually might go is what I've learned. And people over there get the double standard. I've tried to be a person who has not bought into that. Not only do I speak out when a western city is attacked by ISIL, try to speak out when a village in Syria is slaughtered by ISIL, Assad, or other radical groups in the region. <clears throat> Who, who's winning? The Assad regime is winning five years down the road. To say otherwise is just crazy. We had the guy on the ropes at a time when it would have mattered when the entire national security team of President Obama said, go in, go in hard, train the Free Syrian Army that was still intact. He took a pass. The vacuum <clears throat> has been filled by radical groups like ISIL, and the Free Syrian Army has been pretty much decimated. That inaction to take Assad down by empowering those that we could live in peace with, rebuild Syria, uh, that window is probably closed in an effective way. So Assad is going to be around and Obama's going to go. Now, how does he stay? Or how does he go? Maybe Bob Assad takes his place. But the Russians and the Iranians are going to decide that, not the Syrian people under the current construct. So who's the winner? Assad's regime. The Russians are the biggest winner of all, probably. The vacuum we've created in Syria 
has been filled by Russia and Iran. They're killing the people we train to take Assad down. The Russian president is bombing the people the American president trained to fulfill the American president's goal of replacing Assad. We haven't done much about it. The Russian-Iran alliance around Assad has given him a military advantage uh, that will be hard to overcome. So, winners, Russia big time, back into the Mideast, probably a large Navy base, large air base, with influence they haven't enjoyed since the 70s, Iran. They have uh, helped Assad when he was on the ropes. Instead of us training the Free Syrian Army, Hezbollah fighters went in by the thousands with Iranian advisors, and they're likely going to be the biggest beneficiary of any deal that comes out of Geneva. What can I tell you five years later? That the negotiations to replace Assad are one-sided. That the opposition doesn't have a whole lot going for them. That Russia and Iran are clearly all in when it comes to Assad. So any transition that comes out of Geneva is going to be de facto rewarding Russia and giving Damascus, the Iranians a veto over anything that happens in Damascus. Hezbollah, they've certainly won. They've propped up a friendly agent who smuggled weapons to them. Assad's been good to Hezbollah. Hezbollah came to his aid, and I'm sure that uh, relationship is going to be stronger than ever. ISIL, huge winner. We left Iraq, but the real prize of all was our disengagement in Syria, creating a vacuum on the Syrian border that they took advantage of in a historic way. So five years after the fact, even though they're being uh, confronted and being deteriorated inside of Iraq and Syria somewhat, uh, I would say that the caliphate is a result of the civil war in Syria. That their goal of a caliphate has been achieved by our inaction and Obama's foreign policy failures. You can argue should we have gone into Iraq or not. I can tell you this, I'm glad Saddam's gone. If you like Saddam Hussein's Iraq, you should have went to live there yourself. I'm glad Gaddafi's gone. Bottom line is, we made mistakes on the Bush side. President Bush, to his credit, adjusted the surge did work. And if we'd left some residual forces in place in Iraq, as recommended by the entire military infrastructure of the United States, I don't think al-Qaeda in Iraq would become ISIL today. But the biggest mistake of all was on the Syrian side. Uh, so, ISIL, big winner, al-Nusra. The biggest winner of all, of, by far, are those dictators in the world who believe that they can almost do anything now without reprisal. The biggest mistake of all was drawing the red line in Syria. So what price has been paid in the last several years? I don't believe Crimea would be where it's at today. I don't believe the Iranians would be as bold as they are today. I don't believe China and North Korea would be doing what they're doing today if President Obama had took a side out. By leaving him in power, by backing off the red line, he sent a signal to everyone in the world that America is more talk than it is action.
the losers, the Syrian people, by the millions, are having to flee their home. Iraq, completely infected by the civil war in Syria. The United States, probably the biggest loser of all. We've lost our influence in the region and our standing in the world. The Free Syrian Army, a shell of its former self. Sunnis in the region. You now have a radical Islamic group who wants to destroy the, the Sunni states in the region that are traditionally our allies. And if that's not enough, you've given over Damascus to their mortal enemy, the Iranians. Jordan, Lebanon. Two states that have been completely infected by this war. All the gains in Lebanon, all the efforts to break away from Assad and to establish a Lebanon free of the Ayatollah's dictates have, been, have all gone backwards. There are more Syrian refugees in primary school in Lebanon than there are Lebanese children. Jordan. The infrastructure of Jordan is hanging by a thread. So, five years later, it's a mess. What will it be like five years from now? Worse if we don't change. This strategy to take ISIL, to take Raqqa back from ISIL using YPG fighters is not going to work. Just got back from Turkey. What are you doing? Plenty of criticism, Turkey's way, most deserved. This I get. The YPG, in their view, is the cousin of the PPK. It's not a force, in my view, that can liberate Raqqa and other areas held by ISIL and hold it because these are Arab towns. It is not a model that's going to bring stability to Syria. It's just going to wind up creating friction with Turkey in a fashion that I understand. So as we look at the fifth anniversary of the war, the plans to change all these problems are almost non-existent. There is no real plan to destroy ISIL in a fashion to allow the holding. There is no plan to bring about political reconciliation that does not allow Russia and Iran disproportionate influence over the outcome. There is no relief in sight when it comes to the refugees. If the plan works to dislodge ISIL and to put the regime on the defensive, you're going to create millions of refugees that you don't have today. Where do the Alawites go if there is a rebuilding of the opposition in Syria? They're not going to stay in these towns until there's a belief they won't get slaughtered. Lebanon is a friendly place, partially, but it's overrun. If there's not a safe haven established in Syria fairly soon, the people who've been supporting the regime that may one day become a refugee, they have no place to go.
We're not thinking this thing through. So, solutions. Change the strategy regarding destroying ISIL by having a regional military component that can go in on the ground under the Sunni banner with our assistance to take the territory away from ISIL and other radical Islamic groups sooner rather than later. Have Russia and Iran look across the table, see a united world, the West, regional players, all focused on not only destroying ISIL, but ensuring that the uh, Syrian people replace Assad, not the Russians and the Iranians. If you could do that, then not only do you fix Syria, you begin to make progress in terms of the other areas I've described. If you could convince the Russians and the Iranians there's something we'll fight for and challenge them to shed blood for the butcher of Damascus, I don't think they'll take you up on it. I don't want a war with Russia. I don't want a war with Iran. But if you're serious about replacing this regime where the, free Sy where the people of Syria can determine their leaders, not Russia or Iran, you better change the military balance of power on the ground soon. I don't believe the 18 Russian jets they have are going to go to war with us. I believe they will be helpful in finding a political solution that gives more power to the Syrian people, less influence to Russia and Iran, only if you change the military balance of power. I don't believe the current construct will ever lead to the defeat of ISIL anytime soon, so Paris and Brussels are coming here. They have too much space to operate. They have too many resources. They have too much capability. My goal in the next five years is to make them small, poor, and on the run. Today, they're, rent, they're rich, entrenched, and very lethal. Nothing's going to change between now and the end of the election. If in the debates, when we finally get a nominee, and I saw your Trump sign, so y'all are on board for Trump. <laughs> if we don't have a discussion about how to fix this problem, then it will be an opportunity lost. What will Donald Trump do differently than Barack Obama? What will Hillary Clinton do differently than Barack Obama? What will Ted Cruz do differently? If you're not willing to provide some military support to an army with more capacity than those inside of Syria, this war is going to drag on and we're going to get hit. There's not enough indigenous forces left inside of Syria, in my view, in the Arab camp that can ever destroy ISIL without significant regional support. And the region is not going in unless we put Assad on the table. So I just came back from Saudi Arabia and was told you can have our army. Well, one, their army needs our help. Look at what they're doing in Yemen. The will is there. The capability is lacking, but not for an ISIL-only strategy. The reason our training programs have not borne fruit in terms of training people is that we're training people with one caveat. We will support you against ISIL. We will not support you against Assad the dumbest idea in military history. Why? The people we're training who can 
create capability to take the fight to ISIL. Also want to destroy Assad because he's killed their family. Assad is nobody's fool. Do you think he sits on the sidelines and watches these people gain capability, knowing one day they're going to turn on him? So if you don't ensure the people you're training that we have their back for the inevitable attack from the regime, then it's going to be hard to sign anybody up. And the people that you sign up under these conditions you probably don't want because they're not thinking it through. The Kurds are signed up because they have no intention of taking Raqqa. They're trying to clean out their areas and deal ISIL below where they can. But if you think they're going to go into Raqqa, Syria, clean out the place and hold it, you don't understand what's going on in the Mideast. So does Ted Cruz, does Hillary Clinton, does Donald Trump, do any of them offer anything new? And tell me how you do it without it being really hard. How do you fix all this without it being really hard? What happens the day after if you can put Syria back together? Where does the money come from? Talk about nation building. This is not nation building. This is way beyond nation building. This is creating capability inside the Mideast that doesn't exist today to destroy radical Islam by having institutions that serve the people, not the dictator. They give people hope enough to lay down their weapons to allow the police to do the fighting, not the militia. You will never win this war by killing terrorists. If you're not willing to build up the lives of others, it just repeats itself every five years. So I'm going to come up with an idea called the Marshall Plan, working with Bono, the ultimate conscience of the international community, to take a fraction of what we spend in Iraq and Afghanistan try to help frontline states with trade agreements, low interest loans, helping their security apparatus, but getting something for it to see if we can provide some capacity that doesn't exist today. Egypt is 90 million people. The Sinai is red hot. The Sinai and Libya would not be where they're at today without Syria. So the war in Syria has tentacles those tentacles are growing. The Egyptian army and the Israelis are cooperating at a level I've never seen. I'm going to end on a hopeful thought. The war in Syria, because it's been so mismanaged, has created a unique opportunity in history. When you have Egyptian army coordinating with the IDF to destroy ISIL in the Sinai, when you have the, the Arab world and the Jewish state facing two common enemies, working together in a fashion that I've never seen, there's a unique opportunity here. Does the next president get it? That out of this chaos and hell called Syria, there is a potential civil lining. Silver lining. If you had somebody who understood the last five years from a Western leadership perspective, not only could they roll back the chaos inside of Syria, they could form an alliance between the Arabs and the Israelis that I haven't seen.
that could spill over into the peace process. That could really be a bulwark against Iran, which is a nightmare of all nightmares. It's sad that it took 250,000 people. The virtual destruction of a region to get old enemies to work together. But these old enemies, if not become new friends, can take a partnership of convenience and with the right American leadership, make it transformative. Thank you for having me. Any questions? Thank you very much. <laughs> well, that was very sobering, um, and it, uh, I think it leads directly to the question, uh, the next question that I wanted to ask you guys, which is, what do we do about all this? Um, and I, I think uh, Senator Graham suggested that among the potential candidates out there, there isn't a, a deep desire um, to take the kind of um, uh, to take the kind of responsibility for the region that uh, that he feels is absent, and I, I completely agree with the with the senator. Let's just assume that we have um, a reduced a level of commitment uh, to uh, to take major action in the region, but we all agree um, that more can be done. Where where Rob would you start? What are, the, what, are the, what are the two or three most important things to do uh, in, in, order to, in order to set the pendulum back in the opposite direction? Well, okay. Um, uh, uh, simple question. No problem. Uh, a, a couple, well, a, a couple of suggestions. First, we just saw a rather remarkable experience. I'm not talking about Senator Graham's uh, talk, but we, we, we just saw in the last several months a great power uh, through the dispatch principally of air power um, uh, for a relatively limited amount of time and with, with surprisingly few um, uh, human casualties of its own, on its own side, change the balance of leverage and power on the ground in Syria. The presumption in Washington was that this was impossible. That this is this, you can't do that. You have to send in, you know, uh, the 82nd Airborne. You have to send in thousands of ground troops. You have to, you have to deploy an overwhelming force to change the balance of power. Well, we just saw the Russians do this. Now, maybe, maybe the story's not over. Maybe the Russians will get, get stuck in the muck and the swamp and it'll be another Afghanistan. Maybe all that'll happen. But it certainly hasn't happened yet. And the Russian objective, if it was, to change the balance of power, ensure the survival of Assad, um, um, affect the negotiations at Geneva so that Assad's interests are being protected. Well, they did a pretty darn good job. And that's, that's, a, that's a, I think, a, a very powerful lesson to Washington, where um, out of the White House we heard time and time again that this was impossible. So we now know that it's not impossible. Point two. Um, uh, uh, without getting into the, the um, uh, uh, this is not an endorsement, this is not a political comment, um, um, uh, Hillary Clinton actually does have a different position on one key plank 
of this. Now, we don't hear much about it because it's not popular out on the hustings, and it gets buried in the debate when everyone is trying to avoid foreign entanglements in a primary campaign. Um, but uh, um, uh, the former secretary's position is um, different um, also from the president's, where she has articulated the need for the creation of safe zones inside Syria. Mm. Now, now, these are not just humanitarian um, uh, districts. This is what people totally miss. The creation of safe zones, uh, uh, one near the Turkish border, one near the Jordanian border, would most likely transform the, the strategic environment in this country. It would keep Syrians in Syria, safeguarding our greatest asset, namely the European Union, which the Russians, ISIS, and Assad, and the Iranians all agree is vulnerable, and they're all cooperating to undermine through the migration from Syria and Iraq and other countries into, um, uh, into Europe. Safe zones would limit that. Safe zones would uh, change the military balance. They would provide an area where the anti-Assad forces would, would have a measure of uh, protection. Uh, safe zones would change the balance with the Russians. Safe zones would have changed the balance with the Iranians. And this can be done, as the, uh, the senator implied, the Russians only have a couple of dozen aircraft in the arena. The United States has many, many multiples, and the United States and its allies have many, many multiples of aircraft in the arena, and this could be accomplished. Just as we don't want to have war with Russia, I have no doubt that the Russians have no desire to have war with the United States. But I, I, I take you to be agreeing with the senator that, uh, that we need to define um, Iran and Russia um, as adversaries, and we need to be willing to, um, to uh, if not confront them directly military, militarily, at least change the, balance of, the military balance of power with them um, and, and, and start imposing costs on them, military costs on them for their actions in, 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 in Syria. Is that right? And that, is a, that would be a radical reversal of where we are now because we're treating them as partners in Syria. Look, the, I'm not going to get into the semantic game. I think the Russians, if I were a Russian and I saw what happened with the red line in 2013 and that the United States decided it wasn't going to engage, I saw an opportunity and I engaged. And I filled that vacuum to, uh, to advance my interest. Um, uh, uh, it's not a question of being an adversary or, uh, or a partner. It's, it's, it's being a wise uh, player in the, on, on the, on the strategic uh, map here. Um, uh, I, the Iranians are in a different position. We and the Iranians have fundamentally different um, interests here. Um, and uh, to, to presume that the Iranians are partners, I think, is uh, you know, self-delusion. With the Russians, I think the Russians will react to our actions in a, in a very logical uh, a logical manner. I think their actions, their deployment was quite, was, you know, if I were a Russian, I, th I would think it's a quite intelligent sort of thing to do because it took advantage of our, of our um, you know, departure from the scene. But I don't think that, uh, that the Russians are going to have or want a uh, military confrontation with the United States. And I think we can change the balance of, uh, on the ground um, uh, for our interests with a reasonably limited uh, exertion of American power. Michelle, uh, you, do you agree? And uh, do you also agree with the, the senator that I, he didn't say this, but I interpret him to be saying that, uh, that Syria is the center of gravity for the whole region, that the question of regional order and the American position in the region really hinges on Syria policy. Is he, is he right about that? 
yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, Syria, I mean, Iraq is also quite important, but they've become almost, you know, two sides of the same theater. Um, look, I, I, you know, wherever I go, I hear this question, you know, um, what's going to happen after Obama? I mean, people are really waiting to see whether uh, the, the Obama era was uh, an aberration you know, I, I mean, it's partly due to President Obama himself, his own attitudes and so forth, that, that the United States doesn't really have a positive role to play in the world that we've seen come through in these interviews and so forth, as well as what I think was probably an inevitable swinging of the pendulum back in a different direction, you know, after after 9-11, after Iraq and so forth, right? So. Uh, we've seen this real, you know, as Rob very well described, I think this sort of radical, you know, uh, reorientation and withdrawal of the United States from this region and, and generally from a vigorous role in international affairs. People want to know, is that is that going to continue after Obama? With the, is this a more lasting trend? Or, or it, was it just, you know, the Obama era and now we'll see a reorientation? I do agree that Syria is going to be uh, one of the critical places. I, I agree with the idea that, that uh, Rob raised of safe zones. I mean, another thing that could happen uh, in safe zones and uh, would be the creation of uh, an alternative government, you know, of liberated areas. This is something that the Syrian opposition leadership asked very much for the international community to do. And, you know, President Obama had a, uh, had a commitment to multilateralism early on. He had a perfect opportunity. Uh, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, so many allies were, were begging the United States to do something like this early on. It could have been, and still could be, perhaps very multilateral and not necessarily bear uh, an excessively heavy cost for the United States. I wanted to add one other thought, Mike, to what the senator said about uh, winners and losers from what has happened uh, in Syria uh, and also Iraq. One of the big losers at this stage is a whole generation of young people in yeah. this region, right? They are really have, have lost out, have been marginalized. And as much as I agree that it's important to uh, to defeat ISIL on the battlefield and and so forth, um, you know, we we don't solve this problem without addressing the reasons why there are. Thousands of people flowing to it, and you know we, we fixate on the few hundreds from um, you know from Europe or North America, but let's talk about the thousands coming from Arab countries. Uh, and uh, I mean, Senator Graham mentioned, for example, the insurgency in Sinai. Um, the insurgency in Sinai is relatively small. I've heard it estimated at 500 to 1,500 fighters. The problem is it's continually replenished. Mm. Right? And that's because of repression inside of Egypt and very harsh policies against the Bedouin in Sinai, who now largely, it's really a very localized thing, even though they've now affiliated themselves to what they believe is this successful brand of ISIL. So, uh, you know, we, we've got to somehow get to this, this issue of the young people in the region and their needs. Now, we can't go in and do, and, you know, meet their needs, right? We're, we're an outside player. But that's why I think our U.S. engagement with the leaders in the region is going to be a complicated thing. Because on the one hand, we're used to operating government to government. On the other hand, the governments are causing or exacerbating many of the problems inside their own countries that are driving uh, young people toward you know, radical solutions, violent solutions, including ISIL. So you know, it's going to take 
uh, a more nuanced engagement. I mm. think it's not just simply, you know, let's uh, embrace the Sunni leaders, you know, against the, it, you know, it, it's going to have to be a more nuanced policy where we engage with leaders and so forth, but that we don't, you know, public, we don't give them a blank check and we don't publicly uh, embrace them and embrace strategies that we think are actually continuing to drive this region toward instability. Great, thank you. Um, Eric, uh, if I can also paraphrase uh, the senator, I think you said that the greatest achievement of uh, President Obama is that he brought the Saudis and the Israelis together. Um, but it's just together against him and the, and the Iranians. Um, do, do, you, do you agree um, with, the, with the senator that the, um, uh, that the key for the United States here, the opportunity for the United States, is to build a regional coalition based on Saudi Arabia, Israel, Egypt, Turkey, uh, uh, and so on, uh, with, with, with an emphasis to, to creating a new Sunni order well, I think Senator Graham's actually been one of the, in the United States Congress, one of the closest observers uh, of this, and he and Senator McCain uh, and Senator Lieberman, when he was in the Senate, I think deserve an enormous amount of credit for having uh, repeatedly gone out to the region and followed it closely, and I largely agree with what he said. I think, um, you know, to get back to the question that you uh, raised in this last round, um, Michael, which is sort of what is to be done? Uh, I think first and foremost, we, we need to have a strategy for the region. And I think Michelle was correct that the uh, Iran policy was the, you know, the part of the policy that had the germ of a strategy, wrong-headed, I think, but at least the germ of a strategic concept in there, uh, as opposed to Syria, where the issue was how do we stay out at all costs, and, and therefore there was no strategy whatsoever. <clears throat> um, which the president even acknowledged uh, from time to time. If you're going to have a strategy, first, you have to have a diagnosis that, uh, as Churchill would say, takes into account the overwhelming strategic facts of the situation. And the overwhelming strategic facts of the situation in the Middle East today are, number one, that the region is facing a uh, bid for mastery or hegemony by Iran. Um, and second, uh, that there is a um, search for the basis of legitimacy for governance uh, in, in the rest of the region. Um, and our uh, policy, our strategy has to be based on how do we deal with those two things simultaneously, which is going to be very difficult because it's going to pull us in different directions. And that's, the I think, the art of statecraft, frankly. Um, the uh, search for legitimacy shouldn't, I think there's a tendency, as I said before, the oscillation of the conventional wisdom, say, oh, the only way to hold these places together in the wake of the failure of most of the efforts in the so-called Arab Spring is, you know, need a strong man. There is one counterexample, um, which ought to give everyone at least a little bit of hope, which is Tunisia, uh, which seems to be doing, you know, reasonably well. And it's after, after all Tunisia where this all got started. Um, uh, and so I think that's something to, to bear in mind. Um, that requires a lot of patient, not very you know dramatic, um, sexy stuff. Uh, some of the things that Michelle was talking about in terms of outreach to people and uh, democracy support uh, programs, et cetera. Um, and I would make a general point about that, which is that you know, a lot of people uh, say that, you know, our missions, uh, our nation-building efforts 
in the 90s and the last decade have failed. And in fact, there's a recent book by my colleague at SICE, Mike Mandelbaum, called Mission Failure, which uh, the central thesis of which is precisely that. And therefore, the American people are tired of nation building and you know, want to go home and want to build, you know, do nation building at home, which both President Obama and Donald Trump essentially have said. Donald Trump says we're a very poor country, which is ridiculous. But um, you know, uh, we need to be spending money at home, not abroad. <clears throat> to paraphrase Trotsky, I think the problem is, you know, we may not be interested in nation building, but nation building is interested in us, because as uh, Senator Graham was suggesting, uh, we've run the experiment where we leave places alone uh, when states, uh, fragile states, actually move over into the failed column, and we we know what the result of that is because we lived through it with Afghanistan, and it leads directly to planes flying into buildings on September for uh, September 11th, 2001. Um, uh, look at what's going on in Libya today. I mean, right now, the U.S. government is looking to get back into Libya somehow after having walked away uh, after um, overthrowing Gaddafi uh, because the concern that uh, ISIL is rooting itself in Libya and that we're going to have to deal with uh, potential attacks on the homeland uh, emanating from, from that space. So we're, we're going to have to deal with this, uh, and we're going to have to get better at it because we haven't been very good at it. And I think we have to can, uh, can stipulate that. And then the final point, everybody on the panel, um, I think, has said, and Senator Graham certainly said, that the failure to enforce the red line was perhaps the most consequential mistake of the Obama administration. The president, in the, in the Goldberg interview, basically suggests, uh, Rob was talking about this, that he's proudest of this because it flies in the face of the conventional wisdom and uh, what he calls the fetishization of credibility by the foreign policy establishment, as if this is just some kind of atavistic right. uh, throwback to the Cold War. There's a very good reason why people are you know, uh, concerned about the nation's credibility, which has got to do with the fact that the current administration seems to think one can act in one part of the world without consequence anywhere else. And Senator. Uh, Graham, I think, made the point very effectively that our failure on the red line had all sorts of knock-on consequences, not in the region, but elsewhere, and was followed very closely by other allies whom the president has contempt as free riders uh, in other parts of the world who were concerned that if we were not willing to execute the red line in Syria, would we be willing to you know, live up to our commitments to defend them, some of which are actually legally binding treaty commitments. And so I think the first order of business for any new administration is going to have to be to uh, you know, reassert the credibility of U.S. red lines. And some of that's going to have to do with reversing the damage that's been done to the military of an institution by a trillion dollars of defense cuts with another trillion in prospect over the next 10 years. Um, and some of that's going to have to do with actually taking some action someplace that shows that there's a new sheriff in town. Um, we'll open it up for some uh, questions now, but let me just ask you um, quickly, um, because I think we are all in agreement about this, is uh, do you think that the foreign policy establishment, or and let's just say the, the elite, the American political elite more broadly, um, statements in the Goldberg interview as we on this panel were? Because I frankly was expecting, when I, when I, when I read the president calling our closest allies free riders, um, and and when I when I read him when I read him criticizing people who he's 
who he's currently working with, both in the U.S. government and, um, and in foreign capitals, including in Euro European capitals, I, I expected there to be more shock and dismay uh, uh, than there was. And, but it's really hard to gauge because, you know, a lot of you know, people don't like to criticize the president uh, for a whole host of reasons, some healthy and some unhealthy. Um, and, uh, and everybody knows that, that he'll be gone, uh, you know, in, in, in less than a... Uh, in, in less than a year. So maybe, maybe there is a kind of widespread consensus that this is a mistaken path. But I think when I see the, when, when I see many of the presidential candidates espousing views that are not that different, and it really isn't just Donald, Donald Trump. I mean, there's a real, there's a real mood in the country to withdraw from all of these, uh, from all of these problems. So I just wonder what your views are. Is, uh, is it, were, were, is the is the is the is the pendulum naturally going to swing in the opposite direction, or are we looking at a big historical change here? Rob, start with you. I don't, I don't know why you don't want to answer this. No, well, uh, because I don't know if we're in the middle of a, of a big historical change. My assumption is no. My assumption is that uh, um, uh, after. Um, uh, uh, the Bush administration, Obama, the, the pendulum swung way far the other direction. And my assumption is that we, the, the pendulum will have a narrower area of swinging in the next administration. I mean, I'm, you know, there are many things um, about the Bush administration's grand strategy that I didn't think were quite were right, too. And I, did think it, um, I didn't agree, for example, with the idea of 60 years of democracy and stability brought us neither. Mm. If you look at the Middle East, I don't think that's an accurate mm. construct. Um, uh, and I think that the opposite, the idea that uh, uh, what, the, the, what the president has, has, uh, um, has done over the last seven years, I think is totally incorrect in how to build a, uh, a constructive relationship that advances American interests in this part of the world. And, the, and how anybody could look at our, our status in the region today and say that we are better off today either vis-a-vis -vis our allies or adversaries in the Middle East than we were seven years ago, I think it's impossible, it's just impossible to make that, to make that judgment. Now, the next administration, um, it, part of this has to do with, 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 with the nature of leadership. I mean, the, the, the red line affair, as much as anything else, it wasn't just, you know, how I'm going to buck um, uh, the, uh, uh, the establishment and to the, to the, the idea that, that you know that, that all of us have suddenly become part of the establishment is so is so uh, mind-boggling to those of us who I can I can assure you have not had their professional careers as part of the establishment um, is amazing. But the red line affair was as much about the definition of leadership because what was what in the end was the was the president's decision? It was to take the the question of the use of force and to bring it to Congress yeah. um, after we had told our allies what we were going to do. Um, uh, uh, and um, uh, uh, it wasn't that he stood up and he said, I think this is now a bad idea, and we're not going to do it. No. He said, I'm going to let, you know, I'm, I'm going to basically have no view on this, and I'm going to let the 535 other secretaries of state um, um, uh, offer their view. Uh, by the way, Rob, if I might interject. He did that, apparently, as far as I can tell, without consulting with the Vice President, Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, yes. between them had 75 years of congressional experience. And one might have thought 
would be consulted on a decision of this moment. Right. Um, uh, so as much as strategy, it's also a question of leadership and how one defines the role of presidential leadership. Uh, and in that, you know, if, if, we, if we look at it in that vein, it's very difficult to say whether we're in the middle of this historic shift because we have these, these uh, choices of future leaders who are really very different from each other. And, you know, it's, it's, you know we, we can all play the parlor game here. Right. Um, um, but my hope is that we have not just a different strategy, but also a different conception of presidential leadership. Uh-huh. Michelle, uh, what, is, what is your view on this? I'm, I, I'm, just, I'm just struck by the gap between the way we see the world and the way our political elite are discussing it. And uh, if you have any well, thoughts I on mean, that. You know, you, you asked, Mike, whether these sort of isolationist or, you know, views or views that we, we really need to get out of the Middle East are going to, going to endure. And I would say two things about that. One is, um, and this came up a lot in the many written responses to the uh, uh, Goldberg variations and so forth, which was uh, the, the, the cost of inaction as well as the cost of action, right? We've become over, you know, overly aware of the cost of action, you know, because of our, our recession and so forth coming on the heels of these expensive interventions in Iraq and Afghanistan. So now we've come around to the idea that anything and everything we do in the Middle East must be terribly, terribly expensive in blood and treasure and so forth, which is not true. I mean, Rob was laying out some options for dealing with Syria, which are, you know, n nothing like that kind of expensive. And what, and, and I, you know, at, at some point, I do think uh, something's going to happen in which, uh, you know, we're starting to see it now, but in, in which the broader American public and political leadership starts to see the costs of inaction. I've been very struck with that with Obama, of his, his absolute, you know, uh, refusal to see what inaction was costing him as well as action. The other point is this. Look, we can sit here and, and try to imagine what's going to be going on uh, in our leadership and foreign policy six months from now, a year or two years from now. But the reality is in the Middle East, stuff happens. And we'll be reacting to what happens. I mean, think about when President Bush came to office, we were going to have a humble foreign policy. We were not going to be involved in the Middle East like Bill Clinton was and so forth, right? No then, nation building. No nation building. Then 9-11. <laughs> Right, and you know, God forbid. I hope we won't have another 9/11 here. But stuff will happen. It will happen in the Middle East. It's already happening in Europe, and and who knows, you know. So I think, you know, it. it I I think that this this sort of withdrawal and isolationism is going to go on until something shakes us up I, 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 and 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 makes us reassess. I suppose the reason I'm engaging in this what, what Rob called the parlor game is because I feel like those of us who, who have grown accustomed to a muscular, and, uh, a muscular American, forward-leaning American policy are going to have to get used to less. And so the question is, what's the, what, what, is the, what is the sort of um, muscular American foreign policy light that we can actually, that we can actually uh, propose and have any hope of seeing it implemented? So, so Michael, um, I think... Like Rob, I kind of find some of these discussions in which I am cast as a member of the foreign policy establishment a little bit uncomfortable. And I haven't thought of myself in that 
That's way. because you're part of the French establishment. <laughs> the, 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 the Legion of Honor. The counter-establishment. Um, you know, look, after Vietnam, the American foreign policy elite uh, became deeply divided, and, and, uh, and, and the divisions were actually worse than they are now over uh, the degree to which America should play an active interventionist role in the world. I think it only stands to reason that after the exertions post 9-11 that we would go through something similar. Uh, and I do think, I mean, I agree very much with what Rob and, and Michelle have said. I think a lot of this is going to be driven by events. Uh, you know, I think Senator Graham was adverting to that. You know, one attack on the homeland, you know, from Libya or from Syria, you know, changes the equation dramatically in terms of what people's tolerance for risk and what they're willing to entertain as potential responses. But I do think we ought to be, and I think you're right, I think that the elite has become, there is a part of the foreign policy elite, I think the bulk of it, uh, whether publicly or privately, um, in the case of a lot of Democrats, more privately, quite critical of the president. Some were quite appalled by what he said um, in the Jeffrey Goldberg interview. And some of that's come out in columns by pe people like David Ignatius and Richard Cohen and others who've been quite you know, laudatory about Obama in other contexts. Um, but there is a big chunk of the establishment that has concluded that he's right, that you know uh, the costs of action are just too great, that we can't afford it for whatever reasons, uh, and that we ought to have a more restrained and, you know, um, uh, and, and less activist policy, whether you call it leading from behind or what, what have you. My, my friend and colleague Derek Cholet at the German Marshall Fund is about to come out with a book in which he is going to argue precisely that case, that Obama is right and the rest of the foreign policy establishment is wrong, that we shouldn't be, you know, as, as hyperactive as we, we've been. And he's a perfectly smart, reasonable guy. So I, I think the terms of the debate inside the elite uh, have, have changed a bit. Um, I don't think that really means what you said, though, that we have to get used to, you know, something, you know, intervention light. I think you're going to have people who are going to argue against it, and you're going to have people who are going to argue for it, and the outcome is going to be driven by events. Uh, okay. Um, thank you very much for that. On that, let's, let's open up for a few questions. I think we'll go till, uh, till uh, 2 o'clock. Uh, the gentleman in the pink shirt. Um, thanks for the panel. Um, I remember in 2005, um, when Prime Minister Rafiq Hariri was assassinated by the Syrian regime at Hezbollah, uh, running away from school with my friends to take the streets in Lebanon. I was 12. We, there, were, there was a million people there. We, we, were, we were shocked by the support that we got at the time from Ambassador Filtman and after that Secretary Rice and Ambassador Bolton and the administration as a whole. The Syrian people were not that fortunate. 250,000 people died, as you mentioned. Under this administration, we have four Arab capitals that are under direct Iranian hegemony, and the president seems as if nothing, nothing is happening. Millions are being radicalized because of that. My question is, where, where does, how do you reconvince the Arabs that the morality that the U.S. is supposed to stand for is still there? How do you convince the people that are living in the region that there will come an American president that will go back and defend what the U.S. is supposed to stand for and who they are supposed to stand with. My second question is, do you think that the dissolution... A lot of people want to ask. I'm going to stop you there. And just, we'll just have one, if that's all right with you. And you guys want to take it? Uh... I, mean, I mean, let me take part of that on, because I'm at least uh, partially responsible for some of the things that happened in <laughs> Lebanon after 05. 
because um, I made six trips to Beirut while I was undersecretary, um, uh, working with Jeff Feltman and El And so I think to be completely bipartisan about it, uh, I mean, I don't think all the blame here can you know, rest on, on just the Obama administration. I think there were some shortcomings in the Bush administration, too, and Lebanon is one of them. So, uh, you know, in, uh, in 07 and 08, uh, when the, you know, sort of Iranian empire started to strike back, uh, and uh, was undermining the, the government of Fuad Senora. Um, we, in my view, and when Hezbollah was, you know, running uh, rampant through the streets of West Beirut, we we did not do enough, in my view, uh, to push back against that. And and uh, I think we paid some price for that subsequently. Um, I, I think the answer to your question is again, it's going, it's it's there's nothing we can say that is going to fix this. I mean, the only way we fix this is by what we do. And if we take different policies that show that we understand that the region uh, faces this uh, hegemonic uh, aspiration on the part of Iran and that we are going to support those who stand against it, that we're going to stand against it ourselves, we'll make that clear in action. Over time, we'll be able to persuade people. And if we don't, we won't. Michelle, you want to weigh in on that? Uh, I agree with what Eric said. Um, I guess I would say, in addition to that, that, um, uh, you know, uh, the United States has got to be able to deal with uh, governments um, in this region in, in more than one way. In other words, just because, uh, just because you have a, uh, you know, uh, because a, a U.S. official meets with President Sisi, for example, you know, to discuss issues of mutual interest doesn't mean, you know, that we need to uh, endorse his policies inside the country. If we have differences with leaders and what they're doing inside their country that we think is making life bad for their people and driving instability and radicalization and so forth, um, we ought to say so, you know, and, and there are times when we're going to have to make hard decisions um, because our, our actions do, do speak and everybody, you know, everybody reads them. And there are a lot of hard decisions to be made. Uh, and some of them are related to things like security assistance and arms sales and so forth. I mean, there aren't easy answers to this, but I, I think, you know, the United States should, uh, should not be seen as just just caving and saying, okay, well, we understand that um, the people of this region don't, don't deserve to live any better than they do, and so just, just fine. We'll just go along with any, you know, with anything. We'll, we'll endorse any strong man as long as it, you know, uh, as long as it sort of serves our short-term interests. It's just, it, you know, there's no quick answer. It ha this thing has to be sort of um, pursued day by day. And I agree with that entirely. Uh, if I could just add one word, and it's Assad. Assad, I think, is a, is a threefer. A changed American policy toward Assad, um, uh, which is really shorthand for a different American strategy toward, toward this Syrian arena, um, uh, will affect the relations we have with our Sunni Arab allies at the state-to-state -state level. It will affect the relations we have with Sunni peoples across the region, and it will be the glue that helps put together a truly effective anti-ISIS uh, coalition. Um, uh, uh, without a changed, you can do it in the negative, without a changed attitude toward, um, toward Syria, none of that is going to be achieved. Improved relations at state-to-state -state level, um, improved relations um, with the people of the region uh, who have zero confidence in our ability to act uh, in their interests, and an effective anti-ISIL coalition.
I think it's a sixer. It also sends a, 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 a different message to Iran, yeah, Russia, true. and yes. Hezbollah as well. Sorry, could you wait for the uh, microphone? Uh, I'm Nama Abdullah. Uh, I'm a journalist with Ruda, which is Kurdistan's news agency. Uh, uh, it seems that Senator Graham's list of losers included the United States and all of its allies. So I wonder whether what, where you might want to put the Kurds. Are they in the losers list or the winners list? Uh, given the fact they have dealt great blows to ISIS, they've been able to secure their territory, and they're thinking of holding an independence referendum in northern Iraq. Thank you. Uh, which one of you would like to uh, answer that? Eric? <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, well, I think there have been some, uh, certainly some tactical gains for um, uh, various Kurdish uh, elements and, and the Kurdish population. Um, they've had to pay some price too, though, in terms of the overall situation in the region, which can't be comfortable, I think, for anybody, frankly. Um, so I think it's, uh, you know, the, the Kurds actually may be a special case here uh, as opposed to other groups through a whole series of, I think, mostly accidental facts of geography and, and, and other things. Um, but they clearly have come out better, I would say, than other groups have, um, uh, other than the fact that they live in a very tumultuous region and, and it's very, very... Uh, you know, the situation is not stable and they can't count on everything going their way forever. Either, either one of you want to add anything to that? Just, just one sentence, which is, uh, of course, um, one has to ask which Kurds. Uh, Turkish Kurds are today a lot worse off. No, fair enough. Um, uh, certain other, you know, it depends where they are. Uh, let's go over to this side and uh, the, the gentleman with the, uh, the suit and the mustache. Um, my name is Talal Absi, but I can be uh, from the Embassy of Bahrain, but I could be the guy with the mustache. <laughs> so uh, so my, my, question, um, my question is that, uh, is it really simply just disengagement, or is it like active disengagement? Because when, when you look into Syria, um, it's not only about inaction, but also like for the traditional allies to hold their horses. When you think about the Houthis in Yemen, you hear a narrative that they're not Iranian proxies, and to me, it seems like because if you acknowledge that, that will mean more kind of American involvement in Yemen. So I don't know if you share, share that reading or I'm just like overanalyzing. Eric, you want to? Uh... I, I think the administration has, and my colleague Ray Takei and Elliot Cohn and I have written about this actually in the last issue of Foreign Affairs. Uh, has invested so much in the Iran nuclear deal that it has been at great pains to look the other way at Iranian misbehavior across a whole range of issues, notably including its uh, support for um, disruptive forces uh, around the region. And it's not just it's not just in Yemen, it's Syria, it's Bahrain, it's it's a lot of other places. Um, which doesn't mean that, that in Bahrain, for instance, there aren't real issues that need to be addressed uh, in terms of the Shia population and, and uh, its circumstance. But I think there has been an inclination on the part of the administration to look the other way with regard to Iran, which I think has got to be seen as very disconcerting. And just to, to add to Michelle's point, I mean, I, I agree that we have to do something that's very hard and very difficult 
which is to you know, kind of walk and chew gum at the same time, which is to try and deal with the regional security order at the same time that we're trying to get regimes to take steps that are going to be very difficult on a whole range of values questions, human rights and rule of law and things like that. My view is it's impossible to do that if the regimes are not do not believe that fundamentally we have the security of those nations' uh, interests at heart. Um, and if we're not seen as being engaged on the security issue with Iran, there's just no purchase for these arguments about human rights, et cetera. And it drives them, on the contrary, to look for outside patrons uh, like Russia who are quite happy to engage with them without the slightest interest about what goes on at home. Michelle, you want to? Yeah, I just want to add a, a word on this. Um, look, I mean, I think that uh, um, you know wh one of the one of the parts of uh, Obama's regional policy with which I agree has been his sort of resisting the uh, the the Sunni Shi you know narrative, you know, being being part of this and and playing into it as the major problem in the region, and that the United States has to come down on one side or the other, and so forth. I think that actually was something he's done, that, or a general approach he's had that's been right. What I, uh, I, I think has not been so right is that, you know, I think the administration has, has, has really failed to see that a lot of the places where Iran has made inroads in the region, it's because of the failures of uh, the efforts of our, our allies or ourselves. I mean, for example, Yemen with the Houthis in Yemen. As you know, Iran never had a, mid, a major presence in Yemen. This is a very new thing. It's because of the failure of the GCC plan for Yemen. I mean, there are many reasons for it. The Saudis became very preoccupied with their internal issues and succession and so forth, sort of took their eye off the ball. We didn't really want to be that involved. Everybody took their eye off the ball in Yemen. And Iran saw an opportunity, and that, that's the kind of a regional player that Iran is. They're going to look for those vulnerabilities for places where um, there isn't you know, a good plan for moving forward, where there isn't any kind of a, where there's a bad relationship between governments and citizens and so forth, uh, where, where other external players are leaving a gap, and they're going to move into those spaces. So uh, you know that's a problem I think that that needs to be addressed. And Iran's activity, Michelle, I agree, is not purely sectarian. So I mean, right. their support for Hamas, right? Um, you know, and they're they've got other involvements that that have not been necessarily uh, focused purely, you know, on on uh, Shia groups. Although they're quite happy to use those. Their relationship with Al Qaeda, for instance. Rob, did you want to add anything? Okay, I think we have time for one last question. Uh, the the lady in the back, the purple shirt. Hi, thanks for a fabulous panel. My name is Brooke, and I'm an intern from the Heritage Foundation. I was wondering, when we're talking about overlearning, what is the kind of model plan that we strike with Iran in the next administration, considering that they are being more aggressive, and it doesn't seem like the JCPOA really has changed their general outlook on the regional strategy? Great question. Rob, why don't we start with you on that? Model plan? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I can point you to all number of Washington Institute publications in this regard. Um, uh, can you cut the mic, please? <laughs> uh, my, my assumption is that uh, um, the next president is not on his uh, um, inauguration day going to rip up the JCPOA, but that he will have, 
he or she, um, will, um, uh, uh, will put the JCPOA um, in a larger, I hope, I'm hopeful they will put it in a larger strategy um, toward Iran. And this, this means a, um, a strategy of um, uh, pushing back on Iranian um, uh, misbehavior around the region, but more generally reaching out to the Iranian people at the same time. Something which, regrettably, the administration, the Obama administration, has essentially decided to, to, uh, to take off the table in favor of getting the diplomatic engagement in the JCPOA itself. Um, uh, uh, I was very surprised, actually, if you, um, and uh, this, again, this is not an endorsement, I was very surprised if you look at um, uh, Hillary Clinton's speech at, at APAC a couple of weeks ago, she had a passage about the importance of reaching out to the, the people of Iran, which is not something, it's not the, the, the normal rhetoric from this administration. And the administration has a pretty bad track record on this, going back to the Green Revolution in the summer of 2009. Um, uh, does this herald something? I haven't the foggiest idea. Um, uh, uh, I, would, I would like to think that if you can take these three components, um, um, much tougher enforcement, much more aggressive enforcement uh, um, of JCPOA, uh, pushing back more generally, working with our allies to achieve this on regional behavior, and um, a concerted effort to engage with uh, the people of Iran, then you have a strategy that begins to look forward um, toward Iran. Michelle? Yeah, let me just, I, I want to uh, actually pick up on a couple of things Rob just said, because um, in my view, the way President Obama thought about this relationship with, uh, with Iran, he, he erred in a couple of ways. And it, you know, this idea that if we uh, engaged with the Iranian people, that would irritate the Iranian regime and, and hurt the possibility of getting a deal, or indeed, if we enforced our red line in Syria, uh, you know, and, and went up against the Iranians in Syria, that that would hurt the ability to get a deal on the nuclear, uh, uh, on the nuclear file. I mean, my, my sense is probably the opposite was true, right? And that some of these things that are, are you know, that, that if we, you know, create, create uh, static or conflict or, you know, some level of conflict or, or tension, let's say, not conflict, but tension or static with, with governments in this region, be it Iran, be it other governments, by reaching out to their people or by, in some ways, you know, standing up for our own interests in certain areas where we differ, that that hurts our leverage with the, it's the opposite. I think it gives us more leverage in dealing with those governments. So I hope, you know, I hope that that lesson will be uh, learned in a different way by the next president. Eric, you get the last word. Um, you know, just to the point that Michelle was just making, um, <clears throat> and I agree with her completely, I, mean, I think the administration's approach to negotiation in general has been very wrong-headed, and it, it has been one that has consistently, whether it's the JCPOA or arms control negotiations with the Russians, that has consistently ceded leverage that we had to the other side and, and actually turned, in some cases, leverage we had against ourselves by imposing deadlines, et cetera, that then you know, created pressure on us to actually come up with with something. Um, I, you know, I, I think uh, Michelle was right that we heard consistently, Secretary Rice, Secretary Gates heard consistently from our Sunni Arab allies in the region that um, the Achilles heel for Iran was the Syrian regime. Um, and at least in the case of Lebanon uh, post-Cedar uh, Revolution, that support for the Sinara government 
keeping uh, Syria out of Lebanon was one way of pressuring Syria, which in turn would put pressure on, on Iran. I think we didn't pay enough attention to that in the Bush administration, and I think in the Obama administration that advice had been completely disregarded. So one of the things I think a new administration has to do is actually listen carefully to our allies. That doesn't mean we agree with them when they tell us they have no problems at home, that you know, we can stick our noses out of their business, thank you very much. But when they talk about the regional security situation, we ought to listen very carefully to what they're saying. It doesn't mean we have to agree with everything. But to understand the region as they do is crucial if we're going to have a successful. That's great, That's great advice. Uh, please uh, join me in uh, thanking this exceptional panel. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.